Knife Talk is sponsored by Even Heat, the manufacturer of the finest knife heat treat ovens available. Find your next heat treat oven at evenheat-kiln.com. So welcome to another episode of Knife Talk. Now today's show is very special. And we have the knife making legend that is Master Bladesmith, Bob Kramer on the show. So welcome to the show, Bob. Well, thank you very much. I'm I'm pleased to be here. I'm honored. Great, thank you. So I've got so many questions for you. So I'm gonna start at the very beginning. So how okay. long how long have you been making knives? Uh ninety two is when I took my first knife making class. So what does that make it? A few years. <laughs> yes, yeah. What, what what got you into it? Why why take a class? What what sort of piqued that interest for you? So I got drawn into this world via commercial kitchens. So I was going to college. I was studying science classes. I was taking some physics and math and so forth. And also to work my way through college. Um, I had a job at the uh, Four Seasons Hotel in the kitchen, and I'd been there for a couple of years, and I was just a second cook, so so basically, you know, low man on the totem pole in the kitchen, um, <laughs> but very interested and surrounded by incredibly talented people who had either learned in a university setting like um, uh, CIA, which is a, a, a very well-regarded cooking um, school in the United States or Johnson and Wales, or they had cooked their way from restaurants around to then be in the Four Seasons kitchen. And after a couple of years, um, I noticed my knives were getting dull, stealing them wouldn't bring the edge back um, the way I wanted it to. And so I began to kind of inquire around this kitchen of really talented cooks like, hey, does, can you show me how to use the stone? I don't really understand sharpening. And um, and I got lots of no's. And the the only guy that I could really, that that looked like he really knew what the heck he was doing with a set of sharpening stones was the Garmanger chef. He was Japanese, um, trained in Kaiseki style in Tokyo. And really, he was he was very high up in the kitchen. And, it, and there just wasn't room for me to ask, you know, hey, will you teach me this? The guy was always busy. Yeah. And so... Um, I just decided I'm going to learn how to do this. How hard can it be to sharpen a knife? And that sort of set me off on this journey into the world of cutlery and sharp. And what does that mean? And how do you get there? And it took a, it took me several years to really figure out how to sharpen a knife. There was there was no you know this was 1984, so there's no World Wide Web. There were no books that were really that I could find. I found a a book in the library that was a 200-year-old book from France on the industry of cutlery. And so Mm -hmm. I kind of flipped through that and and just, I'm dyslexic, so I can't really read English all that well, let alone high French. (laughs) Um, But they had great etchings. And I could tell from these engravings in the book kind of what was going on, the breaking down of abrasive and the making of glue from fish skins and gluing them up to the wheels and et cetera, et cetera. So I began to sharpen knives. It took me a couple of years to really figure out how to do it. And then I started a sharpening business. So I had all of my equipment in an old bread truck and I had a generator and I would drive around from restaurant to restaurant and sharpen their knives. And eventually after about five years of doing this and I quit school because I just liked it. It was a real honest way to make a living. And one that was never going to 
go away. You know, these knives are always going to get sharp. They're always going to need to be resharpened. I was still connected to the world of restaurants, which I loved. I just loved the whole environment and the food thing and the passion for it and the teamwork. And, um, and I took it on myself to be the expert sharpener. So if I walked into a restaurant and a chef handed me a tool that perhaps I'd never seen before or never even thought about sharpening, and if he inquired, can you sharpen this? I took it upon myself to, to figure out how to do that and to do a, you know, the best job I possibly could to make it shavable. And within that, I would get questions like, what's this made of? And I didn't have an answer. I don't, I don't know. Why does this knife hold an edge longer than this knife? And so, um, one day when I was checking out of a grocery store, it was lunchtime. I bought a sandwich. I'm waiting. There's some magazines there and there's a blade magazine, um, you know, the U S publication on custom knives. And so I thought, well, I'll buy this. This looks interesting and began to flip through and saw, you know, magnificent pictures of custom made knives. And I just thought to myself, how, how do you, how do you even begin? I have no idea even how to forge weld or what is, what is forging? I don't even know how that works. And in the back of the magazine was a very small little ad for the American Bladesmith Society bladesmithing school in Arkansas. And I just, at that moment, I just decided I have to go there. I have to have that experience. What, you know, mm-hmm. two weeks, that, that'd that be amazing to beat on some hot steel and actually start to get some insight into this world, which is another level below sharpening. You know, I'm going deeper into the into the rabbit hole of, of this realm. And also kind of, it's, it's sort of um, a time machine. You know, I get to get transported back into when tools are hand forged and so that was 1992 right okay so tell us about that first knife that you made did you make the same mistake that i think everybody else makes of making this a big 14 inch bowie knife or something like that what was what was that first knife well you know luckily i was in a in a school situation and so we were uh, i can't exactly remember the first one but i'm pretty sure it was quite crude but i think we started jay hendrickson was my my teacher and there were 12 of us that had kind of come from different parts of the world together to to be in arkansas to learn how to do this and we had coal fire forges a big circular event and there were two guys to an anvil and two guys to a forge so you would sort of off and on and um the guy that i went with was was an engineer and he had been making things since he was five or six years old so he was incredibly talented guy and so i got to not only work on my own piece, but I got to watch and observe him forge a piece so I could try to match and mirror what he was doing because he really, he just knew how to manipulate things with his hands and move the material. So that was helpful. Um, but I think we started with a, with more of a hunting knife. I think mm-hmm. Jay, you know, started it off on a, on a really reasonable foot to try to forge this out. And we were using flat bar 5160, so pretty friendly steel to forge. And as we went on, it was a two-week-long class. So as we went on, we forged bigger and bigger pieces to try to you know, build on the skill that we, we learned in the first few days. Yes, yeah. But, yeah. So, so your, your handmade knives now, they're considered pieces of art. So how did your reputation as such a great bladesmith come about? As I'm assuming this was before the days of YouTube and Instagram and so on, which, which is so important for knife makers these days. Right. Um, 
you know, I think it was um, a whole truckload of luck. I think it was the right place at the right time. I think because of my culinary experience, because I'd worked in restaurants for 10 years and then sharpened knives for five years um, with the main focus on culinary knives, I had a really great understanding and appreciation of of what that knife should look like and how it should perform. When I when I went to school in Arkansas at the ABS school, we, we were making hunting knives and fighting knives. And, you know, I'm from Detroit. People didn't use knives. They just shoot you with a gun if they were upset <laughs> with you. So I didn't really, and, I, and I've, I'm not a hunter and I've never skinned out, you know, a deer or any animal. Mm. And so I, you know, I think I can make one, but I don't have a real great connection with that world and being out in the field and how I think that knife should perform. On the other hand, a chef's knife, I feel like I have a deep appreciation. And and while I was sharpening knives, I'd sharpen maybe 100 or 200 knives a day. You can pick up a knife, you know, after you've used one of those knives extensively, eight hours a day for years, and then you go into the repair or sharpening business, when you pick up a knife that's not well-made, you can instantly kind of go down the list as to what the problems are with that knives. Mm. Um, on the other side of that, when you pick up a knife that's really well-made, it, it, it instantaneously you have this appreciation that the maker really understood what this was built for. So I had that as a foundation and when I first started making knives, of course, I made what I was taught, which was hunting knives and fighting knives, but it never really resonated. It didn't, yeah. it didn't feel right. It felt like I was on the wrong track and it wasn't terribly satisfying. Um, I actually was making a knife that was commissioned, which was a, a dagger for a uh, a Wiccan ceremony and it had, a, you know, she requested a black handle for the thing. And as I'm building this knife, I, I have this eerie feeling that somehow I'm participating in this ritual, <laughs> which maybe I don't really want to participate in. And yet, you know, I'm pouring my energy into this thing that will go off to do who knows what. Mm. So, you know, I, I, I sort of worried a little bit like, what am I doing? I think I'm on the wrong track. I like making knives. I like playing with fire. I like you know, pounding on this hot metal. And then the light bulb went off like, dude, you should make culinary knives. Of course, that's what you know. And so then, you know, it began down that track. And, and this was, you know, mid nineties. And, um, I think the food network was just getting traction here in the U S which is, it's huge. Now it runs 24 seven. There's cooking programs, there's competition cooking programs. I mean, every iteration of a cooking program is out there. And so, that was really taking off. And I think people in the United States and, and also around the world were paying very close attention to the food. I think that, um, you know, we, we were concerned about heritage breed pigs and cows and heirloom tomatoes and food. And so that was getting traction as well. And, and I went old school, you know, I, I went carbon steel where the commercial market was all stainless um, I mean, you really had to hunt to find like a high carbon Sabatier or Dexter at that point. A U.S. company was still making some carbon steel knives, but I don't think people really understood. And some of the Sabatiers were not really greatly crafted. So I thought, well, I'm going to take everything that I've learned and um, from the metallurgy to the geometry to the 
comfort and feel and pour that into a kitchen knife and and got traction almost mm. immediately I, uh, a couple of a cooking magazine um wanted to do an article because i because they were paying attention to this old school heritage um and deep appreciation of anything you know focused on food and i think they i also think the craftsmanship has has um blossomed in the last 20 years i think people were really leaning into the internet and technology in the 90s and we thought it was going to be the you know the wonder industry to save all and i and then the dot com thing sort of blew up and people were um disillusioned you know like this isn't the answer and we are missing something and they started to go back into having a garden in their backyard and wanting to buy a handmade thing and not having everything be disposable in their life. And, and I, and I think that was part of the confluence for me of food, making custom knives, um, uh, and, and the whole attention to this handmade realm. Yes. Yeah. And I think talking about that, you know, the provenance of food and people want to know where their where their food comes mm-hmm. from. I, I see mm-hmm. this happening more and more with things now, too, such as, you know, such as knives. So, for example, with mm-hmm. my knives, each one has a, a personal serial number and you can look up the materials used and so on. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think people are starting to appreciate the the act of making as well now. Yeah. Yeah, I think it I think it left for a while. And I, and I thought mm-hmm. we I think we all kicked back and, and sort of. Um, I don't. I don't think it evaporated altogether, but I think everyone was into these commercial or commodity items, and now we're going. Wait a minute. We we need to salvage some of this, and you know, really is realizing that some of the social media stuff is not terribly fulfilling. But when you've got something that was made by hand, or you met the maker and you bought that thing made by hand, it that good feeling doesn't go away. Whereas mm-hmm. when you buy that commercially made product. It's sometimes not there. It feels a little hollow. It may be a great tool, but it doesn't have that story. It doesn't have that connection. I mean, you can think of, I'm sure when people use your knives, they, they go, oh, yeah, I met this guy. And, you know, he's been making knives for a few years. And he's very passionate about it. And this material is, and they tell your story. Hmm. And it makes the experience richer. And it's probably a better tool as well. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So so let's talk about your knives. So they obviously mm-hmm. sell for thousands, even tens of thousands of dollars. So I assume mm-hmm. in these take a very long time to make. So so how many knives are you personally making on a maybe a monthly basis these days? It's a it's a tough question to answer because it it varies depending on what what I'm making. In the last few years, I haven't made a tremendous number of knives. Um one year maybe I made 30 the next year, you know, maybe 20 knives because of mm. a number of things that were going on. I was sort of traveling and I was teaching sharpening classes. This year, I've just moved my shop, which was a huge undertaking. We're still setting the shop back up mm. um, and I'm making a bigger, better, stronger um, production environment. And um, so I'm not a production house. I kind of go through phases where maybe I'll... I'll crank out a bunch of straight carbon 52-100 knives, and then I'll go through another phase where it's mosaic Damascus, and then I may go through another phase where it's R&D. I've been making my own steel from scratch, and and that's the R&D is incredibly time-consuming if you want to do it thoroughly. Mm. So 
In other words, um, I have an idea for some chemistry of a steel, and so I'll put that together, and then I need to forge the piece and work it and pay attention and take notes and then take my best shot at heat treat and then evaluate the heat treat and then do some performance testing. And then usually from that, there's another iteration that will come to mind, and then you need to pursue that and go down that road. So it can often take weeks to really begin to understand a new chemistry, at least for me. Yes. Oh, I can certainly imagine. Yeah. So, I mean, you've worked with, with Zwilling on, on the range of factory knives. So, Correct. So how did that come about? Did you make a prototype, which they then copy? How, how does that work? Yeah, we, um, I, I had worked with um, Shun for a number of years, and my, my contract was coming up. And then I was looking at other options to see what was out there. And uh, Zwilling was interested in you know, it's a, it's a company that's over 275 years old and they have factories in Germany and they own a factory in Japan, which I liked quite a bit. So we sort of had the best of all cutlery world. We had some mm. German engineering. We had Japanese craftsmanship. I mean, there are a lot of guys in that factory. There's probably somewhere in the order of 150 people that touch a knife from start to finish. Wow. And so, yeah, I mean, they're really hand-built, and um, I think people would be surprised to really get an inside view of what that factory looks like. It's impeccably clean, and the people that work there are just incredibly talented, and, you know, you'll never see their name on the knife or listed on there, and yet they're, they, they're really good at what they do. So um, in talking with Zwilling, they were, they were interested in working together, and, and so we came to an agreement, and... I think it's been seven, seven or eight years so far working hmm. together. Well, I, I did see a video last night just on YouTube of, of their factory, how they heat treat okay. blades, and it's just so impressive on such a scale. It's it's crazy, crazy. Yeah, yeah, they do know how to produce. I mean, mm. and that's it's uh, as you know, it's challenging to produce large numbers of knives and keep them consistent. Yes, yeah. Well, I, th I think it's great to see even sort of smaller makers now taking the plunge and getting maybe smaller factory runs done too. I mean, a good mm -hmm. example maybe is, is Florentine Kitchen Knives. I don't know if you've seen their stuff, but it's that mm -hmm. some of the most beautiful knives I've ever seen. Nice. Mm. And do you, yeah, think, I... do you think more and more makers using technologies such as CNC machines to produce small factory-style runs at home will be, will be more common? Uh, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think that they're, I mean, we're already seeing it. Some people employing those machines. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I think that there's, um, a debate and a divide on whether or not, you know, that's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, it seems like some people are, are adamant that it needs to be handmade and not really sure where that line gets drawn. I think it's different for each maker. They decide because a lot of these guys that feel that it, it must be handmade. They're okay if you use a power hammer or they're okay if you use, <laughs> you know, a two by 72 grinder. Whereas really is that maybe you should all be done with files. So I, I'm not opposed to it. I think you look, these are tools that, that help us. And, and if we look historically, when somebody had the bright idea to um, channel power from the river onto a water wheel that would drive a grinding wheel and a number of other machines in the shop. It was brilliant. And, and of course, why not employ that? You know, that's just going to help you 
produce more instead of having your son turn this big wheel, which then in turn would turn a smaller grounding wheel. And that's going to be inconsistent if he's tired one day or he feels great the next day. You know, why not have a nice consistent wheel or speed on the grinding wheel? So, you know, looking to today for CNC machinery, um, if it's if it adds something, in, in other words, if it adds consistency or accuracy or gives you the ability to do something that you couldn't do otherwise, I'm all for it. Hmm. Um, you know, I think that there's if, if you look in in the realm of art history, if you look at Vermeer's paintings or if you've read, you know, um, the book, uh, what, I think it was David Hockney's book on um I can't remember the name of it, but he, he sort of, you know, looked at paintings throughout history and he said, well, something happened here in the 1500s. What, something changed, you know, the, the depth of these pictures, the level of realism, the control of color. And, you know, his conclusion was it had to do with optics or camera obscura. If you look at um, Japanese metalwork, like the level of detail on Asuba uh, that were coming out in the Meiji period, the 1500s, there is a jump as far as the level of detail that is in that. And again, we think it's because they had optics, they had magnification that they could now see much better. I mean, most people's eyes start to diminish around 30, 30 to 40, you begin to lose detail. So, you know, that cuts a lot of us out unless you've got the ability to use a microscope or some kind of magnification keeps you in the game longer. So is it cheating? I don't think so. I think then, you know, you have all of this experience and then you can use this assist to your eyes to execute that work and experience. Yes. Yeah. I mean, even a CNC machine, it's not just pressing a button. It's a lot of new skills to learn, isn't it? So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on shows like Forged in Fire? Um, I think they're great. I think they're entertaining. People love them. I mean, I, I hear the conversations, you know, as I, as I move through town or, you know, just when, when TV shows come up or reality TV shows, people are often saying, oh, I love Fortune and Fire. It's so exciting. And it gives them a, you know, a vicarious um, view of that world that they may never see otherwise. And um, so I think it's great. I, I'm a, I cringe a little bit when, you know, these... <laughs> beautiful swords, you know, that someone has really busted their hump to make and has put their heart and soul into it and maybe got two hours of sleep when, you know, they're hacking into a big thigh bone of a cow. Mm. Uh, that hurts me, you yeah. know. <laughs> I, I, I think it's unrealistic as far as what that sword was built for. Um, maybe if it's a more human-sized bone, I might be more inclined. Mm. Or if it's a... Uh, you know, a, a piece of green bamboo that's wrapped with a wet tatami mat. I go, okay, that's cool. I, that that sword should definitely be able to do that. But hacking on a big ice block, that makes me cringe. Yeah, it's good entertainment, but yeah, I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. So whilst we're talking about sharpening, let's talk about one of our sponsors, Tomac. To get great razor-sharp and repeatable edges, you're going to need a Tomac. To find out more, go to Tomac.com, which is T-O-R-M-E-K.com. Okay, let's get back to the show. So, so let's talk about materials. What would mm -hmm. be your top choice of steel for a generic chef's knife? You know, I love fifty-two one hundred. Mm. Always have. Um, 
and it, it's it's a magical steel. It's really uh, gives you an incredible edge. It's tough. It's durable. It's wear resistant. Um, that's my top choice. I continue to use it. So where do you source your materials and consumables? Because here in Europe, it's just so difficult. So I'm always having to import from the US. Um, I've just started using combat abrasives in the US, and they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. So this is just a quick plug. If anybody's listening and wants good quality belts, um, give combat abrasives a go. Yeah, so with regards to materials, where, where would you get yours? You know, I get it wherever I can. Whenever I find it, I, I get it, and I usually buy it in large quantities. I think the last time I bought 50 to 100, I bought 6,000 pounds of it just wow. so that I would have it. The, the, the other piece of it is, is is that if you find the steel that you like, if you buy it in quantities, there there's a much higher chance that it's consistent, that it all came mm. from the same run. When you're buying different lots, that chemistry is changing slightly, and you will get different results. I mean, if you think across the spectrum of elements that's in that piece of steel from one batch of 50 to 100 to another batch, you know, if the range for the carbon content is 0.95 to 1.05, well, if we push that down to the lower end to 0.9, and then the manganese has a range that's, let's say, 0.30 to 0.45, and then we push the manganese up so it's 0.45, and then so forth, go down on the chrome, that steel is going to operate differently, especially for what knife makers are trying to do. We're trying to find the edge of the envelope for what that steel can do. And the steel manufacturers, their goal is to manufacture a steel that's within spec, that goes out to the industry, that can be heat treated within this range. And they're, you know... It, as long as they're within that specific chemistry, they're okay. But on our end, that product is changing a little bit. Mm. Mm. I mean, I've just got an even heat oven myself, and I'm in the middle of doing some sort of pretty nerdy testing on on just basic carbon steels. And I certainly mm-hmm. see what you mean in regards to batches. Following the same mm-hmm. recipe, a different batch will, yeah, it's, it can be completely different. Right. So I tend to buy in big batches and then utilize that steel you know, once I dial in the heat treat, then it's, I stick with it and I check every batch and, you know, just try to stay, uh, try to stay abreast of it. But you're right. It is, it is tough to find, um, great steels. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's your favorite and least favorite part about making a knife? Hmm. Wow. Um, what is the favorite? Well, I love forging. I mean, I just, mm. you know, especially the, the Damascus forging because you know you get to get under that power hammer and really get after it and it's just fun I like playing with fire and you know I like moving the materials so that's really fun um I like the hand forging as well uh it you know it feels like it's physical work it puts me right in touch with the material I like watching it move I like watching it change color so I think that's probably my favorite. The other part is, um, you know, after you've made a piece of Damascus and um, you, you go to heat treat it and, and then you can kind of watch that transformation happen. And then coming out of the etch the first time, it's like developing a photograph. And it's, it's just exciting. It never gets boring. Yes, yeah. So what are your thoughts on stock removal? I think it's fine. Yeah, I don't think mm. there's anything wrong with it at all. I think it's just a another method to employ. It's another another tool, another way to to get to the end result. Yes, yeah. Okay, cool, cool. So are there yeah. 
any important steps that you see other knife makers or bladesmiths maybe overlooking um, that you've seen? Um, I do see a rush to sell. I do see a rush to, to, to be recognized, to be the master. There's a, there is a shortcut which the internet has allowed. And in some respects, it's marvelous because in the middle of the night, you can get up and get to YouTube and, and watch a, a forging demonstration from somebody on the other side of the world. That's fantastic. But um, there is something to be said about putting your time in really understanding what it is that you're making before you go to market. So I, I see a real rush to market. I, I think the other side of like forged in fire or the whole social media thing is that people want to be recognized like immediately. Mm. Like I've been making knives for six months and suddenly I want to, you know, like I'm the dude, I, I'm the guy that figured this out. And it's like, wow, you've just put it <laughs> six months in it's. And I mean, I, you know, it used to be that an apprenticeship was five years long or six years long. I have a friend in Japan who's a licensed swordsmith. He had a seven-year apprenticeship. Hmm. And I said, Taro, how, you know, how much money did you make during your apprenticeship? And, and he looked at me like I had three heads. He's like, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, well, you know, after the first year, you must have got paid something. He's like, no, I didn't make anything. For seven years, he lived at you know with, at his parents' house in Gifu, and then finally he could take his test and get his papers so that he could begin to manufacture. And and he watching this guy work and and being around him and the level of respect he has for what he earned and what he learned and how he understands the material is really beautiful. Mm. And I I see partially because of YouTube, a real rush to be recognized and that the, some of the foundational stuff is not there. Some of the understanding stuff is not there because they got a recipe from someone else. And so they take the material and they push it through the recipe. And it's, you know, I'm not saying it's a bad knife. I'm just saying that level of understanding is not there. Yes. No, certainly. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, obviously, you're, you're a very well-respected figure yourself. And lots of lots of knife makers look up to you, but but nice. who who do you look up to? Oh wow, there's a lot of people. Daryl Meyer, um, uh, Al Pendre, unfortunately just passed away this year. Um, I would say he was really a great teacher for me and a great inspiration. He's just a great man, and he really understood the material. I mean, he helped. Um, for the first time, as far as I can tell us really understand what Woots was. And so, you know, he was a really humble guy and he was a farrier by trade, you know, he shoot mm -hmm. horses, but um, he understood this material and he put in so much time and energy. Um, you know, you should see the scrap pile beside his shop of failed experiments in trying to crack the code on Woots. Mm -hmm. And so I really uh, admire him. Um, Hank Nickermeyer, there's another guy I admire quite a bit. Howard Clark, for sure, deep understanding of of uh, heat treatment and metallurgy, and he also worked closely with Al Pendre. Um, Devin Thomas is Devin Thomas is a is a, really a bright guy. He makes absolutely beautiful beautiful knives, and 
Um, so there, there's a, a whole, whole bunch of people. I'm sure I've left a, a mess of people out. Tom Ferry is, you know, fantastic world-class maker and Taro Asano. He's the, my friend, the sword maker in, in Japan. Um, Yoshindo, Yoshihara, um, gosh, a lot of people. That's a great list for people to start looking up and to sort of to, to look at their craft. So, so I'm interested to know, would you, would you consider yourself an artist? Or did you have any other artistic or creative outlets apart from, apart from making knives? Um, I, I love building things. I've always loved building things. Um, I consider myself a craftsman. Hmm. Um, I see the realm of art as one which will transform someone's experience. And I guess it could be argued that somebody using my knives maybe will have a transformational experience in that they, are, they, they, may, they may have the experience of, wow, this, this is really comfortable in my hand or this cuts really well. And while I appreciate that, I, they may have that experience. I see art in the realm of changing one's perspective on maybe um, a social level or a moral level or an emotional level. Um, and so, yeah, I would say I'm a craftsman. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. So so what's next? Um, you've got this huge list of people tripping over themselves to get your knives. Um, you've got this crazy factory range. And well, Have you set any other goals that you haven't achieved yet? Yeah, I'm setting up a, a new shop. So um, this shop is, is, is bigger, more streamlined, more efficient. Um, uh, I'm going to be doing collaborations with Tom Ferry, which I'm very excited about. I feel like I've just scratched the surface on making my own steels and my own recipes and beginning to understand that realm and how I can mold and manipulate and incorporate those materials. And and that last piece right there will keep me busy for 10 or 15 years, I'm sure of it. Um, but I hope to bring in once this once this shop and, and plant is complete, to selectively bring in other makers from around the world, and have very small master classes where we can have a very intimate situation and really get very deeply over several days into some material to be able to share and have maybe some new understanding. And I'm just so thrilled to to um, feel like I have a shop that can that comfortably and easily accommodate that where we've got we've got it all like so how do you want to heat treat this are we going to do it in a pine charcoal forge with a traditional fuego are we going to go to a salt pot to a mar quench um, are we going deep freeze to minus 120 are we going to go to a minus 120 and then 320 and then come back out and cycle you know seven times over the next five days it's it's all going to be here and it, it, in a sense i feel like ferran adria and and uh you know his experimental kitchen in in spain i, I feel like we're setting that up so that we can bring in other people that are passionate and have a different perspective and basically build a little a little crucible a little experience shop here where we can learn from each other and and just get reignited re-excited about the craft 
Fantastic. So people can get Thanks. really nerdy and obviously just, you know, take the craft further for everybody else yeah. too, which is great. Completely geek out, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to finish with one question, and I, and I ask all the guests this very same question. So, so what are you finding challenging? Is there anything that you'd love to make but you haven't quite built up to yet? And I talk about this every week, and mine is always a good serrated bread knife, which I still haven't done, but I will do one day. So is, is okay. there, have you got that one thing that you haven't tackled yet? Mm. I've never made a Japanese sword. Um, I mean, I've made them out of mono steel, but I'm but I'm talking about you know, starting with tamahagane and doing the whole folding process and taking it taking it all the way up. I've never done that, and and I would love to do that. Um, but I'm also uh, I'm very careful about not wanting to just jump into that pool. I have a tremendous amount of respect for those guys and. Um, I'd probably start with a with a traditional tanto and and um, you know go from there. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, you'll soon have the playground to be able to do that, I'm sure. Yes, sir. <laughs> so that's probably a very good time to wrap this up. But thank you so much for your time, Bob. It's been really uh, great speaking with you. Well, thanks. It was my pleasure. I appreciate you including me. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.